right, hello everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Elixir Mix. And uh, this is probably the last time I'll say this, because it'll start to get old, but this is the second episode uh, where our brand new panel with so many new and awesome faces are welcoming a guest. So I won't do that for when it's our third episode, but I feel like the second episode, it's still new, it's still exciting. So hey everyone, I am Sophie De Benedetto joining you here from upstate New York. We also have with us today, Lars Wickman. Hello. We've got Bruce Tate. Hi, everybody. We've got Alex Kutmus. Howdy, howdy. And Stephen Nunez. What is up? We've got Josh Adams. Yo. Back with us. Hey, Josh. And, oh no, Mika, I'm going to say your last name wrong. I know it. Mika Kalafiel. Yeah, you got it right. Hi, everyone. Awesome. Hey. And today we are welcoming Justin Schneck, who, as some of you I'm sure know, is one of the co-authors of The Nerves Project. Welcome, Justin. Oh, thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. Your app is slow, and you probably don't even know it. Maybe it's fine in most places, but then the customer loads the page up, that one page, and after a couple of seconds, their attention disappears into Twitter and never comes back. The reality is there are performance issues in your app and they're affecting your customer experience. What you need to do is hook up your app to Scout APM and let it start telling you where the slowdowns are happening. It makes it really easy. It tells you how slow things are and what the problem is, like N plus one queries or memory bloat. It's also built for developers, so it makes it really easy to identify where the fix needs to go. I've hooked it up to some of my apps and I saw what I needed to fix in a couple of minutes. Try today for free, and they'll donate $5 to the open source project of your choice. Just go to scoutapm.com slash devchat, and then deploy it to your app. Once you do that, they'll donate the 5 bucks. That's scoutapm.com slash devchat. Uh, Justin, do you want to maybe kick us off just by introducing yourself a little bit, uh, talking a little bit about you know what you have to do with the Elixir community and with nerds? Uh, sure. It's kind of... A funny long path of several different twists of li uh, lifetimes uh, to get to this uh, to this point, but um, um, yeah, if, uh, uh, Nerves uh, in itself to start from the top down is uh, an, a platform for being able to build in embedded devices using the Erlang virtual machine. Uh, it'll basically run anywhere that embedded Linux is supported. Um, and how I kind of got to the place where I became slightly obsessed or mildly obsessed moderately obsessed with uh, 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 embedded devices. Um, I was actually uh, almost eight, nine years ago, I started, uh, I was an avid motorcyclist. And uh, from there, I, I also loved the idea of uh, uh, technology. And uh, right then, smartphones were sort of starting to, to come out. And uh, they weren't the best ones yet. There was like a Palm, the era of Palm, you know, and, and all that. And um, and I wanted to kind of marry these two ideas together. I, I, I wanted nothing more than to be able to James Bond myself with my bike and start it from my phone. And it kind of had the, like sparked this catalyst of this love of being able to um, not only produce uh, software that can have an impact on your life, but software that can actually impact physically the things around you. It can actually bridge that gap, that divide between digital realm and, and reality. And, uh, I was hooked. You know, I, I got the project done, but when I realized that was um, the most difficult parts were tying it all together and getting it communicating with like phones and having the bike secure and safe and all that kind of stuff, 
um, that there was a big lack for being able to uh, kind of get started on that. There was there was a lack of uh, uh, guidance in the community and 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 like best practices and and on ways that people could get in, uh, involved and start to build stuff. The make movement as it as it will come about is just sort of kick is sort of kicking off during that time as well. Um, and so over the last eight years, I I sort of dedicated my time in my life towards trying to be able to um any way possible uh make it easier for people to build embedded devices that they can use around themselves to better their own physical space or uh to also uh you know build for others to help them that's where i've uh, eventually got involved with uh, frank hunleth and uh, we've been working together for quite some time now being able to build nerves I have to ask, what was your first motorcycle? Because I'm a fellow motorcyclist, so I have to find out. As, oh, I was so I I um I was a young kid and I could I bought whatever I could get my hands on. It was a 1980 GS Suzuki GS 850, four cylinder, um, and uh, I was young and I I was um, uh, I live in Pennsylvania and so I met up with some friends. I bought it because my friend of mine he had he had he legit had the james bond bike during this time like the bond movie was coming out and bmw had the the their, their uh, uh gs was the in the movie and he had that bike and he's like yeah we should go to this motorcycle rally for bmw in upstate uh vermont and i'm like sure so i just bought whatever i could get my hands on it was like this like it didn't even run you know and friends of mine and i we just we took the whole thing apart and like got it running and i drove it to basically up to canada that year you know, put all my trust in this thing that it's actually going to stay running. No idea. I was like, you know, learned how to ride, got up and running on this like old 1980s bike. And that thing was just, it rock solid. It, it kept going. Yeah. And then from there, I, um, I got um, a newer Suzuki. I got a, a V-Strom because, you know, we like to go off-roading a, a little bit. Uh, and then my favorites have been uh, the Triumph uh, motorcycle. I love the, uh, the Tiger Series ones. They have, they have this three-cylinder engine. It's just, it's just, super nice it's not too torquey you know and it's not it's not like a four-cylinder where it's like revs too high so yeah that's pretty cool i've actually ridden the tiger before i uh, rented it in colorado and did uh, a couple mountains over there a couple years ago it was very fun bring it back yeah. to elixir uh <laughs> what made you uh choose uh um the erlang virtual machine as a target for embedded devices was that was that your first go at it for this uh remote start on the bike or did you use maybe like free rtos or what uh, what did that journey look like yeah that, that that really um um you know thinking thinking back to where where it started the first thing i, I ran on i tried to make this thing work with like arduino because i didn't know any better at that time you know i was i was new to embedded systems development and um and so I, I built like a prototype of it. I got it working and then uh, realized very quickly that I needed more power to be able to do some more complicated bits like like um, these microcontrollers like are great for real time tasks. Right. But they're they're it, kind of, it gets a little tough when you need to be able to do things like connect them to the to the wider area network, like uh, especially if you need to do stuff over like cellular or, or things like that, you know. Coming into higher level languages at that point makes a lot of sense. And so um, my next steps actually during that time were to try to do Ruby, you know. Bruce, Bruce, Bruce got triggered by this slightly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so there's, a, um, there's a language called Elm, you know well, and the, the creator of the language, his name is Evan Chiplicki. And yeah, I spent yeah. a little bit of time with him in San Francisco. And um, we were talking and he said, hey, Bruce, Bruce, the, you should make the motto 
of the Erlang language, like I have anything to do with that, right? <laughs> you should make the motto, did you try turning it off and on again? Right, <laughs> uh, so the IT crowd. So it's, it strikes me that devices, that real devices are kind of the sweet spot for this whole thing, right? Um, you know, we, we, um, we are building these increasingly complicated systems that, that really need this reliability, the connectivity, and um, we're adding uh, things like connectivity, we're adding things like user interfaces, and all these things that are throwing more and more processes in the mix. And um, we're doing it in a way that it becomes increasingly expensive to brick these things, right? Yeah. So yeah. it strikes me that, that nerves should fill this role almost perfectly. Yeah, I mean, well, so it's like, you know, going from Arduino and moving our way up, there was not enough power on that platform. And then I stepped through Ruby. And what I found myself doing was creating OTP and Ruby, right? Because those guarantees are the most important thing, I think. Because like causing that brick in the field is like catastrophe. Like that's, you know, you're like, you don't have the same kind of access to these things that you normally do. You put this thing into a closet, it's supposed to run some mission critical tasks, like, and you send the updates to it. You got to make sure that it's, it reliably comes back to life. And uh, yeah, so you know, when I found myself like having the desires for the guarantees that I get in OTP uh, while programming stuff like prototypes, original early prototypes in Ruby, um, I discovered Erlang. And during that time, then I discovered that Frank Hunleth was working on uh, uh, nerves with, uh, at that point. Right? Like he kind of started a lot of the, the progress forward on trying to be able to marry the Linux kernel with Erlang and make these really small, um, robust, fault-tolerant uh, systems for, for distribution. And um, uh, yeah, so, so, you know, it's... To, to touch even further on that, right? Like the, the why is it even important then that we have this kind of high level of reliability other than the idea in our head that we can think of to prevent these bricks, right? And and it's all about like, um, you know, the, the story of, of, of state, you know, let it crash, turning it off and turning it back on again, right? And uh, uh, being able to protect that, that, that built-in mechanism kind of helps us, forces us into a mindset where we're, defensively trying to protect ourselves in a clean way against the, all of the things that we don't know that we don't know, right? That, that facet of knowledge that, uh, I should say, lack of knowledge where, where it's, you know, the, the buckets of things that, that, that uh, the knowledge that we have, right? There's the things that we know, the things that we know that we don't know, and then all of the unknown, right? Which is all of the things that we don't even know that we don't know, right? And that's the world. Right. And we're taking these devices and we're putting them out there into that landscape. So we need to have something that's going to give us these like this mindset, this like natural defense systems towards like, what do we do when we encounter the unknown? Right. Well, did you try turning it off and turn it back on again? <laughs> Automatically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it strikes me that um, that the team is is even with some of the introductory um, you know, articles and, you know, because you, a blog post isn't enough for nerves anymore, right? But it strikes me that um, that with the new circuits library and um, and some of the other things that are coming out, you're really starting to embrace OTP a little more, even with the beginning examples. Yeah, um, you know, we, we ship on embedded Linux as, as uh, because they, there's a lot of support, low-level support for like drivers and things you get for free on that case, right? But then more and more of that kind of like a like older mentality of I have to do everything in embedded Linux, or I have to do everything in C, 
um, when it comes to talking to peripherals or external devices, really those are just protocols that are run over the wire in similar ways, oftentimes at lower speeds than stuff like Ethernet, you know? And so, yeah, with the additions of a lot of these libraries, we're trying to promote that, uh, embracing that um, directly in, in both code and um, in, in the uh, OTP um, supervision framework as well. And for all of the stuff that we can't do, or that is my, maybe just like um, an unnecessary lift, let's say, which is to like rewrite some driver that may already exist in Linux, where you could just flip the switch on and ship it with your product and get the extra benefits. We advocate the use of being able to still embrace those in the VM in a way that Mott allows you to supervise them. You know, like um, you know, what the, the, the similarity really is, um, and this is sometimes something that uh, that's striking to people is, um, you know, in Linux machines and uh, systems, like you'll usually boot up and you get uh, the, the big thing, which is called system D, right? It's your initialization uh, process, right? And uh, and when we look at system D, we look at that and we, we say, well, what is it doing? Well, it's, it's starting up a bunch of applications in a defined order. It's uh, making sure that all the states, right? It's reacting to different state changes in the system so that other processes may come on or modify some sort of files and it's like sterling right so like that's why we ship nerves without system d's because we feel that your initialization can equally be handled as well in erlang um and uh, uh and at that point then we try to be able to push people towards syst that system d structure as kind of representing that um that supervision tree uh, and then naturally things start falling into place and you can start to realize that when you're building a nerves-based application, that that's really you building a system, that OS, like your own, your own sort of like fully functioning thing. It's like, you know, it's not like you're going to just go run it on some AWS box. Um, uh, it's actually going to be the all-encompassing runtime of that entire, entire thing. You guys mentioned Elixir circuits. Um, I hadn't really heard that much about it until I think you first mentioned it at your ElixirCon keynote last year, Justin. And you also talk about how, you know, you want embedded uh, programming to be accessible to people in the Elixir community. So what what are Elixir circuits and what does that have to do with it? Uh, Elixir circuits is this advancement onto uh, what was originally done. Uh, Frank Hunleth wrote this library a long time ago that, that some might remember uh, known as uh, Erlang Ale. Uh, and uh, then, then subsequently came Elixir Ale, uh, and uh, uh, it was just a poor name for uh, uh, the, the the project itself. Um, it didn't really get, uh, it didn't really describe exactly what it was doing, but it was sort of a combination of uh, efforts to be able to use common embedded protocols uh, like uh, one's called SPI, which is the serial. Like a serial protocol, um, I2C or I2C as it's often known as. And, uh, to, and these are usually used to be able to communicate with tiny little devices or chips or like sensors and stuff like that. And um, uh, Elixir Ale and Erlang Ale were sort of this, uh, like themselves were this uh, bag of, uh, uh, of modules that could do all of it, right? They could do uh, UART, uh, which is uh, for like, that we'll know of like as normal serial ports and SPI and I2C and all that kind of stuff, GPIO, general like GPIO, right? And and at its most fundamental is that one, GPIO, right? You can just think about that giving you the capability of of uh, turning a light on and off, right? Um, or a 
changing a, a, a wire from, from being a high value or a low value, right? Or the reality of which, as we know, as software engineers, binary, so on or off, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, these libraries, it, it, kind of, it kind of was the, the first start at it. And then what we did was we broke them apart to be able to let you kind of like pick and choose which ones you actually need in your project and just to allow other libraries to start building on top of them um, into the circuits libraries. And uh, there's a great website that you can go to. Um, I believe it's, a, it, it's hosted by GitHub Pages. So I think it's like Elixir Circuits. Uh, what's the GitHub one? We'll have to get a link and uh, put it into the uh, the notes on the end here. Yeah, we'll find it and add it to the show notes. <laughs> um, but uh, the website actually uh, is it's great because it renders not only the information about all of the individual projects in, in Elixir Circuits that you can use to be able to speak to some of these sensors, but dependencies that exist in Hex that use Elixir Circuits to give you a leg up on uh, interfacing with external sensors as well. Uh, so there's a bunch that are out there already that use these to be able to let you communicate with additional peripherals for your nerves devices. Speaking about the accessibility of nerves and kind of getting into embedded systems, is there any learning material that you think is a good place to start for people getting into embedded systems or nerves? Man, that's a great question. Um, I wish I every day I wish there was more um, and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna stitch a, a couple things, a couple thoughts together on this one because to to sort of illustrate the complexity that there is and and why it's difficult to directly answer that question. Um, uh, first off, uh, with nerves, um, it's it's a little it's a little difficult because we have kind of an inherent problem with the amount of repositories and, and source code locations that that our project has, um, and that's because of all of the different uh, tools and Resources and um, uh, and also uh, libraries that are that are that are used in concert to be able to create this final output. Um, we sort of rally around the colon nerves package as being a, a a friendly ingest point for issues and discussions and things. Um, but um, uh, as far as uh, where to be able to find out more information to start learning things directly about nerves itself, you can check out the hex docs for the nerves package that contains a lot of sort of guides that um, also digest a lot of the workflow that's required in getting up and running. Um, and that'll get you started with, um, I think, the easiest project, which is the uh, Blinky, right? Now, which yeah, it's a hello world of hardware. And that's, uh, as we were saying, with uh, GPIO, that's, can I turn a pin on and off? Can I change a zero to a one? I mean, um, it's, 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 it's basically the, uh, the way that we all kind of like make sure that things can get up and running right away. We love to see LEDs because it indicates power. <laughs> um, and so you can go through a, a Blinky example. You can also check out pre-built ones at uh, our GitHub uh, organization, nerves-project uh, slash, uh, there's a nerves under examples repository um, that can contains a great deal of uh, uh, pre-built example code that will show all kinds of different things like um, well how do i do blinky how do i do networking how do i do wi-fi um, there's also some examples too that we talk about like how do i do how do i make um, uh, my device broadcast a wi-fi network and let other people join it um, there's also information about how to use phoenix in conjunction with nerves projects to be able to build like uh, web-based uh, user interfaces. And then we also started embracing a lot of the stuff that we've worked on together at the Tote for doing kiosk 
uh, applications so that you can actually render to a screen a web-based interface, including uh, some work too uh, for Scenic, which is for user interfaces. You can also then go further and deeper into that realm as well. Uh, but really, uh, Nerves, there's some special stuff to it, which may be different to the average developer. That's usually in the case of the, well, I'm building an OS at the same time that I'm building an application. But we try hard to be able to let you stay on the happy path as much as possible. And that's inside of Elixir. So you can uh, really, to learn um, a lot, a great deal about how to get started with Nerves, would be to just invest time in reading about uh, best practices on ways to be able to do Elixir. And some of my favorite books um, have been, uh, you know, the, the Prague Prog series ones. Uh, I remember getting started on the Dave Thomas book as well. Oh, and um, Bruce, the latest one that we have about uh, the uh, about OTP. Um, the exact title is, is is evading me. Please, designing Elixir systems with OTP. Yeah, exactly. Yes, the functional core. That book is beautiful when it comes to. Uh, how to be able to lay out um, uh, uh, OTP applications in a way that that really plays well with nerves, because then you'll start butting up against those sort of friction points, which is the where the system starts to become real in your application. Um, and we have ways to be able to kind of uh, get past or get around those those feelings of friction. Um, but um, if you ever kind of feel them and you don't know where to ask questions, uh, check us out on the Elixir forums. That's the best place because we don't lose scroll back. Um, and also on the Elixir Lang Slack group, you can you can come and ask them questions there. There's a really active group. Yeah, and so Quaxio, finally, so we started talking about um, you know teaching nerves. Uh, gosh, more than a year half and a half ago, right, Justin? Yeah. So we are finally. We finally announced the NERVS module, and that's going to debut on November um, 15th. And the reason that it took a while is that we had to get the OTP and Elixir abstractions right. The functional core is exactly what we talked about, right? So that was kind of the um, you know part one, and then the Groxio module for OTP, and then we have something to build, build around. Um, and we hope we hope to take that into things like um, you know schematics, and it'll be more video than book. So um, I think that'll help as well. Yeah, that'll be great. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, as someone who um, approached hardware as a pure hobbyist, I would say um, starting with anything from like Adafruit and Pimaroni, uh, the simple hardware and the Raspberry Pi is very very approachable to start with and you can always start with raspbian and then go over to nerves to pick up the rest learning about wiring things up and getting all the little hardware details and uh, i think spark fun has a lot of good information but adafruit and pimaroni uh, with their products basically the core of their products is that they have a lot of learning examples uh, and most of that transfers well over to nerves there's some differences in library support and that sort of thing. The first thing I did was port a library from um, from Python to Elixir, uh, which well, was how yeah. I learned most of NERFs. Uh, yeah, that's that's totally common too. Going from Python, I, I want to. I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you on that one, but I just want to like really accentuate the fact that that's like a a, a common thing. Like like find if you can find a Python library that did it. Um, porting that is pretty easy. And also, um, uh, 
yeah, with with uh, coming from uh, Raspbian and stuff, we still we still do that a lot today. I mean, I mean, like nerves isn't this thing that it's like it's like go or no go. Like it's got to be all nerves or nothing, or you don't feel cool enough. Like, like the reality is that nerves is a great shipping package, right? It's like it's a great box to put your stuff in for production. And when it comes, but but when it comes, because it's like it's only what your application needs, right, to be able to live out there. And so you get rid of all of that unknown stuff. Like when you're kind of poking around in the dark, like, and you need to be able to have more examples and you need to have like all of the stuff turned on, you know, like Raspbian's great because it's, you know, it's a couple hundred megabytes, almost a gigabyte or so, but, but, the, but that's because every, all of the bells and whistles are turned on. Yeah. So I'd, for anyone who wants to start with nerves, I'd say buy a Raspberry Pi 3 and maybe some hardware that seems like fun and just go for it. It's not particularly difficult. As you mentioned as well, Adafruit has really great sensors and they're all in breakout boards, so it's really easy to try them out. Roxio calls themselves career rocket fuel for curious coders. They are some of the most experienced Elixir trainers in the business with over five years of Elixir teaching experience. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but don't let that stop you from continuing to learn. Groxio offers remote Elixir and OTP live training courses with no more than six participants. These short two and a half day sessions give you plenty of keyboard time with your coach, Bruce Tate, co-author of the Programming Phoenix and Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. Groxio also has three extensive Elixir self-study courses available. Whether you want to learn Elixir, OTP, or Phoenix Live View, the self-guided trainings give you the videos, projects, and books you need to make your own breakthroughs. Groxio wants to be your Elixir on-ramp. Subscribe or buy a course today at grox.io. So let's say uh, I have a cool nerves project in mind and I, I uh, program it out, everything works. Uh, what kind of patterns and best practices do you recommend for you know, testing those embedded uh, systems? Do you like mock out all the hardware? Do you, uh, I see you smiling, so I'll let you, I'll let you dive in. <laughs> oh, it's such a hot topic. Yeah, um, testing is so important. And, and uh, um, especially because like, you'll find with the development cycle with nerves, it's you want to do as much of the work as possible on your host computer, like on your laptop, like we're all kind of used to operating on now, because that's where all the power is. It's going to get you there the fastest, right? So, um, so what we found is, uh, um, oh, geez, my, my friend, uh, uh, Lance Halverson, I, I remember uh, his talks, uh, Phoenix is not your application, right? Well, nerves is not your, well, I guess you could say it's your OS in a way. <laughs> Maybe we'll go one step further. But the principles that he's getting at there is that you're not supposed to pack everything into the same application that that you're sort of like letting letting Phoenix or Nerves like guide around it, right? So, so the application that you create that is your you can, like your egress uh, that goes to your hardware, right? That's the one that the colon Nerves app uh, dependency is going to be in, and you kind of want to leave the code that exists in that OTP app to be as much of the glue between business logic and hardware as possible. And then you want to take as much of your like like regular good old business logic that you can do anywhere and separate that out into other uh, uh, shared OTP apps. Like we found that the module level of separation for nerves-based projects is not quite enough. And that because of the power that you get and the, and the flexibility that you get with um, ordering OTP application starts via dependencies or by explicit starts um, is a better level of control in that case of organization. So we promote the, the idea that you can 
um, break a lot of your business logic out so it's highly testable into those areas. And for the rest that exists in the project that has that nerves dependency, all that very hardware specific stuff, then yes, and you're going to have to start, uh, you'll have to mock out the modules that are extremely hardware specific that can only run on a target. So on your host, you might be able to just return back some info. And there's some good libraries that you can use for this. Mox has a really good story. MOX has a really good story for that. Um, and uh, there's some other ones. Um, we're also internally at Very working on one uh, that's called uh, Hook um, that allows us to be able to uh, kind of mock those things in and declare mock modules uh, as necessary. That doesn't sound dissimilar from sort of the patterns of thinking that you might adopt if you read Bruce's book about designing uh, Elixir systems. Yeah, see, Bruce is giving a thumbs up. It's almost like he had that in his mind. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to, at some point, take another pass at that topic with NERVs projects in mind. I just, I think that there's a, um, a lot to be gleaned there, but I've never felt quite experienced enough. So, um, Justin, maybe there's a collaboration in our future. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, so since the beginning of the year, I started working uh, at uh, a consultancy called Barry. And uh, um, we, um, uh, through that, as it's been an interesting experience because I've moved from a product company at Latote to being able to do consulting work. And um, the it's funny about, about that because you know we we started on a, uh, our first project and then what we saw with what we learned with that project even we rolled into the second to the third and so it's funny because I'm still learning every day uh, better and better ways to be able to structure these kinds of things they're starting it's starting to become a lot uh, clearer um, and there's still some a few areas that you might find yourself uh, fi uh, having a little friction but uh, I think that we're really on to uh, that now that we're uh, from now that we're sort of in this great adoption phase with this. So on the topic of uh, embedded uh, beam targets, there's also a project called uh, GRISP, and I was wondering if uh, you know you can kind of compare and contrast nerves and GRISP. Not to turn into a Vim versus Emacs debate, but where is one better suited versus the other, and maybe what are, what are some of the engineering trade-offs that went into each project? Um, the answer is that spaces are way superior to tabs. Um, in all editors, everybody uses that, right? Uh, actually, so <laughs> um, so the, uh, Grisp. I heard is... a million nerves just turn off the podcast. So that's it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Grisp is a a great effort that's being put forward by uh, uh, Pierre Stritchinger. Uh, he and his group are working to be able to create uh, a hard real time component that can get delivered. And that has like several uh, problems with it, like not problems, but things that we need to solve, stuff that he needs to work on. Um, and from the first step is, well, uh, we need to do hard real time at the hardware level. So we need to run sort of bare metal, as they would call it. Like you want Erlang to kind of be the OS, the main system. Um, and then the second, the second one then stems into, well, how do we get uh, Erlang itself to be able to give us uh, real time guarantees, right? And now what's, what's the actual problem here? What is hard real time? Well, if we think about sensors that are out there in the world, some sensors, they require you to be able to communicate with them in a way that um, you have to send them a pulse that's, a, that's got very specific timing and those timings need to be perfect. You need to make sure that this, this, this wire, these bits get twiddled at just the right frequency, at just the right rate, right? And on systems like Linux or desktop machines, those, 
those are soft real-time uh, systems. Those, they have schedulers and the schedulers divvy up the work that's required for everybody to be able to get their fair share across the available processors. And, you know, like there's no guarantees that you're going to be able to hit any deadlines. It's just going to try its best to be able to try to get everybody a fair, a fair shake at the time, right? So if you have a process that gets paused because somebody else needs to speak to the network and that process that's paused needs to be able to turn the bit high right when it goes and gets paused, then you're going to miss your deadline and that could be bad, right? You could probably not interface with that sensor or that device uh, too easily. Um, and so from a hardware perspective, we wanna try to be able to push the software to run closer on it so that it can be able to like get all that scheduler and stuff out of the way. And that's fine if we can get rid of like Linux. So in the case of GRISP, it runs on this uh, RTOS or this real-time operating system at, at like a C level. Um, and uh, now, now their challenge in that is that they lack uh, the kind of support that Linux gives us in the case of drivers. And so. Um, the heavy lift there is that for anything that they need extra driver support for, they have to write it. Furthermore, the part that I'm very much interested in the GRISP uh, uh, project is the work that's being done on trying to be able to extend the hard real-time guarantees to help work inside of the Erlang VM, right? Because the Erlang VM itself has schedulers, and um, Erlang also has this message passing actor model, right? And so in the case of Erlang's, people go, oh, well, you can just set process priorities to be like extremely high, wouldn't that solve it? Um, while process priorities might, be, uh, might solve some of the problem, there's no concept of message priorities, right? So if I send a message to another uh, uh, process, then, then that, there's, no, there's no way for me to be able to say that that's a, a, a real-time important message and that it needs to get processed immediately. And then there's other problems that exist as well. Things like, uh, in that case, you couldn't really do gen server calls. Um, so that pattern breaks down, which make, breaks down supervision, um, which then uh, itself uh, I'm, uh, leads into issues that you might find with uh, situations like um, uh, some of the data structures that aren't optimized for this kind of stuff, like uh, uh, queues and, and things where, you know, um, putting things into the beginning of the queue is a, a a normal operation that can take a known amount of time, that's fine, but every now and then we need to reverse it and then and then grab stuff off the back. And that reversal can take an unknown amount of time based on its size. And so that itself is something that's not gonna be optimized to be able to run uh, in a real-time constraint. So uh, GRISP is essentially a project that's being uh, worked on to try to be able to uh, truly do hard real-time uh, in a true bare metal fashion, uh, uh, using Erlang VM, and and there's a, a good marriage there that can that can operate together in these situations. Oftentimes, we find a lot of projects get deployed with both hard real-time components and soft real-time components. One example of which is this project called FarmBot. Um, in that case, that's a farming robot. Uh, it's a, basically a CNC machine that sits outside on a raised bed, and it does uh, it plants and weeds and waters and does all your stuff. This is a product that's built using Nerves. Um, it's actually using open source uh, hardware or, or maker hardware, readily available hardware uh, to be able to build its systems as well. So it uses a Raspberry Pi soft real time to be able to do a lot of the networking bits, scheduling, all that kind of stuff. And it uses an Arduino based board to be able to control the motors and the timing and the accuracy of the movements of the machines. And then all we do in those cases is we promote the use of both. Uh, we see this a lot in deployments where you'll have uh, a low-level microcontroller, a hard real-time system that you want to connect to the wider area network. The, one of the best ways to do that would be to be able to just 
um, put an embedded Linux or a NERVS node uh, in front of it and let it manage that uh, hard real-time component. Pretty cool. So it's like a like a hardware supervision tree. You have the super heavy-duty Raspberry Pi supervising the uh, teeny tiny Arduino. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and and a, and a funny thing on that is um, uh, something that I've been I've I've been thinking a lot about lately is that um, you know people find hardware uh, sometimes unapproachable. It's difficult to them, and they think that it's this foreign thing. The reality is that uh, hardware is nothing more than software that's literally set in stone. That sounds terrifying. I know. You make a mistake, guess what? <laughs> That's what the errata document is for. <laughs> Just send out some solder and some wires and like, uh, yeah, here's the patch. Oh, uh, yeah, it gives new meaning to the word hotfix. Yep, yep. I think semantic versioning needs another dot for hardware updates. So uh, to, to, to riff on that a little bit more, because this has been something that I've been utter, like, sort of obsessed with lately. Um, you know, we talk about making mistakes with hardware and how terrifying that is because there's no like undo. The undo is literally like uh, redo the circuit or like jump it with wires. Um, and so at uh, Very, we've been trying to accelerate the means of how can we uh, produce better prototypes faster. And by one which is um, I've been spending a lot of time lately uh, prototyping circuits at home. And this board right here is uh, actually a printed circuit board. Uh, it's made by a machine that I have called the Volterra. And what it does is, um, like this board right here, what it does is it's got a flex connector that's a 45-pin precision connector in the middle that's got a really fine pitch to it. And that connects a display, and then it breaks it out to all of these easy-to-plug you know, headers, right? And this machine, what it did was it dispensed all of the solder ink, which is all those white, cop uh, those white silver traces that are on there. And then it also goes back, it'll, it'll drill holes. So this one you can see is actually a, a two-layer board. Um, there's a, there's a, a via here. And if I flip over the back, we can see that there's uh, some jumps around. It'll drill the holes. You put in all of the rest of the stuff. You, you set, uh, it'll, it'll dispense solder paste and then reflow it for you. And what this has allowed us to do is it's allowed us to be able to catch those same mistakes that software, us software engineers make, those, those duh moves that you find when you walked away for five minutes and finally thought, oh, right, yeah, that's how I fix it. Uh, that copy and paste error, essentially, uh, it helps us find those faster because we can, we can actually exercise the circuit um, and uh, get rid of that uncertainty, right? Because this is, you know, this is like the building block, right? And the, and the most dangerous place to be in this case is like if you, have, if you have hardware that you're not sure about and you have software that you're not sure about, like how do you validate which one, right? So um, having the ability to create something that you're pretty confident in, to create software that can confidently communicate with it. So when you remove it and put the final one in, you can validate that it has been produced properly um, is really important. That's, that's your testing. That's hardware testing, right? That's, that's like X unit for hardware. <laughs> that looks really neat. <laughs> uh, just check the site and it's request a quote for pricing. So I don't expect to have one in my garage anytime soon. And I, I mean, just imagine combining that technology with 3D printing. It's not that bad. I'm going to take my money. Yep, yep. 
I want to I want a combo unit that'll like that'll that'll print the substrate and then let me dispense on the substrate and then like yeah. My partner recently got a 3D printer and while I'm very excited about it, the downside is that now everything that I want to buy, I'm told, oh, no, 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 I, I'll just 3D print that. But uh, the 3D printer has yet to actually be assembled. So we'll see what happens with that. My yeah. 3D printer has been broken for uh, seven years, I think seven years. Since the dawn of 3D printing in your home, it's been broken. It'll get fixed eventually. Yeah. So as someone who's been hanging out in uh, the Nerves channel on Slack for oh more than a year now, um, I often see Bluetooth and BLE library support show up as a big question in Nerves. Uh, and there was a large uh, effort from, I think, just one individual to build Haral, which would be uh, uh, a an Elixir native Bluetooth library. Um, and I know the core team has fairly limited capacity in, uh, in all that you do. Uh, what do you think would be the best way to get some of things like Bluetooth and uh, maybe the Pi 4 display driver stuff uh, implemented that are currently missing or uh, that have fallen out of uh, lockstep with, with the more used systems and the more used drivers? Uh, it, it usually, unfortunately, comes down to two things, people and money. Um, and so in the case of consultancy, uh, the original one of the original Bluetooth libraries that was pushed forward was called Herald. Um, and uh, Dana Spofford, a great engineer at Barry, uh, built that for one of our projects that uh, we shipped there. And it had a limited feature set that it was necessary for that, that engagement. And then when we're finished with that, um, fortunately, you know, onto the next one didn't require Bluetooth involvement. So uh, that library kind of left, uh, uh, was left hanging a bit, but we, but the idea is that um, we wanted to be able to make it public uh, so that others could have a, a starting place that they could look at to be able to see, well, how do, how do you do this? Or how do you push these kind of things forward? Um, and uh, um, from there, it really, it requires somebody that has a project, right? Uh, a need for it. Um, the, now, when people approach a, a, a platform like this, they would they would go, "Oh, there's nothing available for me now. I'm not going to be the one that writes it." But um, the Bluetooth spec, it's big. It's not scary. It's just big, which sometimes people equate with scary. Um, but uh, if you kind of break it apart into its components, there's not a lot there. And so uh, I think that the uh, um, uh, I would take a page from the Nerves keyboard. Uh, group uh, and uh, and say that uh, we need a group like that that's engaged building something together, especially during these times uh, remotely, to have a need for implementing Bluetooth that would get that kind of thing across the finishing line uh, and add more widespread support for, for that for the community. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps 
or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of The Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. So on that note, are there any uh, community projects that you wish people were building or maybe, maybe have languished and you wish would, would push forward a little bit further than they have? Uh, you mean like inside of uh, like a, like a nerves-based project? Uh, I mean, either just nerve-based projects or things that interface. I'm being intentionally broad and vague here. <laughs> uh, sure. Um, it's tough being, it's tough maintaining a lot, lots of these projects. It really is. And um, um, yeah, I, I, I personally wish that I had more time to be able to dedicate towards some of the repositories that I had. Uh, I've uh, let some of them go for a bit too long and um, they kind of get love when I get around to it or when I finally find a project that needs to implement them, I'll brush them off, dust them off, and kind of catch them up to speed. Um, I personally, because of the origin, origins of my, uh, of my story, my desire to marry mobile phones with embedded devices to start my motorcycle, like Bluetooth, Bluetooth was one of those ones that kind of got me. Like, I really like that idea. I think that that's a, a really important piece. And, and I would love to be able to see that get pushed further. Um, other ones as well as uh, um, I know uh, uh, user interfaces are really important and highly desirable feature for a lot of applications. And um, Unfortunately, uh, there's well, there's a couple avenues to go down. Unfortunately, I'm not a web developer, and so those that tool set doesn't doesn't assist me as much. Um, and so I usually gravitate towards scenic a little bit, um, uh, and and that's been enjoyable to play with and and work with. And there's actually a couple devices that I've shipped already using it. Um, I just wish that it had a little bit more, and that we could push that forward as well. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that grow and. And what comes out of that? Um, and I know uh, there's been some recent chatter too uh, from Frank and his team, uh, and also Connor Rigby on the co team. They've been working on getting uh, Flutter, uh, the Flutter engine, uh, some first class support so that it can be used to also bind in uh, to use for uh, user interfaces as well. Yeah, I think that'd be great. They use that for the, the Nest Hub for all of the front end. And it's, I, I personally really love Flutter. We also had a uh, bit of success using a QT front end that talked to an absinthe backend running on the local machine, uh, not for a nerves thing, but for another quasi embedded thing. And it was uh, it's surprisingly usable and easy to develop in. Yeah, it's, it's situations like those are nice because there's uh, distinct lines that force you to draw uh, like containers and components for user separation between your user interfaces and business logic and stuff like that. One of those cool things that you can do with the Qt uh, 
like the kiosk systems is basically just host a Phoenix app and develop it side by side in Earth's project and get it to compile as a kiosk system, which I find really interesting. Um, actually, I've used that in a personal project with Bluetooth, uh, but my experience with Bluetooth, I ended up using a ESP32 to do the Bluetooth for me because of the lack of Bluetooth. I couldn't really figure it out. Um, so as someone who's fiddled around with Bluetooth a bit, I'm curious, where would you start uh, on re-picking up Bluetooth for NERVs? Well, everything you know about Linux and Bluetooth, throw it away. It's garbage. Bluez is just a, um, it's a, it's, it's a heap of, of legacy. And, uh, um, and so I would, uh, the part that I'm only interested in is uh, Bluetooth 4.0, uh, the, the low energy stuff and on. Um, I think that that part of the spec is digestible. Uh, Herald offers a great place at least to be able to look at what would be a, a decent framework to build upon. Um, it tries to expose the Bluetooth spec in a way that can be sort of composed through um, and extended through a, um, a data structures uh, that would represent the specification. Um, a lot of the transformation uh, functions have been put into place, but it just needs to sort of have that extension. Um, although I wouldn't dismiss your um, solution, you know, offloading that protocol and that stack to a coprocessor that exposes a reasonable API over some other protocol uh, is um, actually a decent way to go about it. Yeah. These situations, if you don't need deeply embedded Bluetooth support in your main processor, or, or like, like to say for like data transfer, like high-speed data transfer, you can usually just offload that to a different protocol and then use some sort of coprocessor, like you're saying, to be able to handle that uh, portion of it. Um, but if, you, if you're interested in, in pushing forward on the effort, um, I think that uh, uh, a great place to start would be to, uh, to just come up with an example of taking like a Raspberry Pi Zero W that has built this uh, $10 uh, board that's got built-in Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, and take one of those, configure it, and get it to um, show up, appear as an accessory for your phone, your mobile phone. And then um, that would be that that would be an easy win for the community to be able to then build upon the next steps, which would be then trafficking data and exposing like sub protocols or uh, sub accessories over it. So kind of piggybacking off of that. Uh, so if you leverage like external resources, you could either use like a port or a NIF. What's the what's that story look like on nerves? Like if I use a NIF and the NIF you know crashes and burns, does is the machine is the Raspberry Pi essentially just Bricked until I restart, or what's what's going on there? Now, it can be bad news, but um, I believe all of the official nerve systems ship with the hardware watchdogs enabled, which ties into Erlang Heart, which then monitors all the way up through to Erlang the uh, ability of, that your machine is still running and that things are alive. And so, if a NIF happens to take down the VM, you'll at least reboot, um, and so you can you can kind of recover from there. There's been some extra work to be able to push out our auto revert features into the Raspberry Pi systems lately. Uh, uh, John Karstens has been leading that effort, and a lot of that code just recently got merged. So I would look out on the next versions of the Raspberry Pi systems mechanisms that when you would reboot, let's say you go, you, let's say you streamed in a firmware update that has that bad NIF, and then you boot into it, and it loads up and blows up the VM. It would never have time to validate the system, and it would have failed back to the uh, last known good working copy as well. 
Um, but it's all about uh, throughput. You know, if you don't need high speed, um, then you can get away with just doing ports. Ports are a little slower than NIFs, um, but uh, NIFs are more dangerous. And so if you can do a port, you can isolate that um, explosion uh, and, uh, and get some better guarantees and some better safety in your supervision trees. Um, but uh, if you need speed or you need performance in that case, then um, you might consider going a NIF or you might consider just offloading that to some other co-processing or something. Uh, or uh, I know that there's a lot of projects that also work towards um, uh, building out things that will uh, compile for Rust NIFs. Um, and uh, uh, we, I think we have part of a story for being able to include Rust in NIRVs, uh, but uh, once again, it just requires somebody to have that project uh, to help. Do you know of anyone online. playing with Zig in NIRVs? Zig, yes. Frank is obsessed with Zig right now. That's there's fantastic somebody, to hear. Yeah, the Zigler stuff, it's really cool. Um, yeah, that's actually, uh, I think, maybe even more supported than, than Rust right now. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, yeah, check that stuff out. Check out Ziggler, check out Zig, and get involved in that, because I know that there's, that's a big spark of interest right now. Was it, was it Rustler that came out first, and then Ziggler, or the other way around? Yeah, Rustler. I, I think Rustler, Rustler was first. first. Okay. Yeah, I think so. so. I think we're just about out of time. So what we'll do now is we'll go around, and although we've collected actually a ton of awesome links to all of the resources that we've been discussing, and we'll have those available on the show notes. We'll go around now, and if anyone has any picks, any uh, recommendations or suggestions they want to share, could be related to Elixir, could be related to programming, could be something totally different, um, I will just kind of round robin us, and we can get those going. Let's start with Lars. Honestly, I get nothing. <laughs> it's okay. It's nice because there's so many of us that uh, surely we'll be able to share some recommendations. Uh, let's see, Alex, anything from you? Yeah, so I got one pick for today. Um, so recently I've been playing around with the toy project. Uh, I won't say what it is just yet, but one day I will release it. But uh, I purchased uh, Tailwind UI a couple months ago in the hope that I would have a project for it. Well, I finally had that project. And so I was messing around with getting a like landing page, pricing page, you know, all those typical public facing pages uh, set up. And Tailwind UI was ridiculously easy to get set up in conjunction with LiveView. I got like the whole public side of it done in like three days and I was amazed. And I thought I was a wizard by copying and pasting all of the, uh, the code from there. So that's my pick for today. I love that feeling, feeling like a wizard from copying and pasting. It's like highest reward, little like least output. Uh, excellent. All right. How about Josh? Yeah. So I'm going to go back to the well for the thing that I've been uh, having fun playing with. Um, I haven't really played with it as much as I'd like it, but this is the Pine Time and it's a $25 open source uh, smartwatch. And there's a bunch of stuff being worked on around BLE specifically, which is why I was thinking about it. Uh, by this guy who is named, and I'm probably pronouncing it very wrong, but Lupian Lee, uh, and he tweets about this obsessively. And he's working on uh, a Bluetooth companion app for the Pine Time, like to load firmwares. And so I expect to play with with BLE a lot in that uh, in that arena, because he's also building a Flutter app for doing this. But uh, anyway, I just I think it's neat. I like all the stuff that Pine sixty four is doing. Awesome, thanks, Josh. All right, next up we have Mika. My pick for this week is actually something I mentioned, uh, which is the QT web kiosk uh, for nerves. I, I think that's a really useful thing when you're coming in and trying to build any sort of UI. So yeah, I just want to bring that into attention. Very cool. 
Let's see, going down the list. Bruce, do you have any picks for us? Yeah, I have a couple. Um, so Brian of Dockyard asked me to mention the um, the Elixir Foundation survey. So um, it's a great thing to respond to, um, just kind of help out the community um, and help us understand um, where we can apply resources. The second one is um, Todd Resident, um gave a great talk on building a sprinkler system um, at um, at Lone Star Elixir our conference, and so that was pretty cool. And he has another couple of talks on. What is he calling it now? The Breathe 2000. <laughs> so um, yeah, those are those talks are a lot of fun and have interesting nervous projects. Awesome. And actually, I think Todd is going to be joining us in two or three episodes. So it's good if people want to check out his talk in advance of that. That's the pick. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's just about everyone. We'll save. Uh, we'll save Justin oh, for last. Uh, how about I you, Stephen? Yeah. Um, so I've got a, I've got a couple. Um, so for the, the alien historians that find this audio in the future, we're currently going through something, uh, called COVID-19. So going out to movie theaters is kind of tough. Uh, one thing that I, I found is available in my area, maybe in yours is drive-in movie theaters, sort of making a resurgence. So checking out a movie this week at the beach. Sounds great. Uh, it's a shame it came under those circumstances, but I'll take it. Um, so go look up drive-in movie theaters in your area. And uh, my second pick is kind of a shameless plug. Uh, me and Sophie the DeBenedetto, DeBenedetto the Great. Wow, wow. I know, nailed it. First try. Are doing a course at ElixirConf, uh, shipping Greenfield Elixir in a legacy world, where we uh, show you strategies for leveraging uh, rabbit and distributed messaging to uh, bring in new applications alongside your legacy application, and then maybe usurp and take over the world with Elixir? Maybe, maybe. Uh, but if you have grand plans, you should check out our course. Thanks for plugging that, Stephen. And I just want to add, Stephen and I used to teach together at the Flatiron School, and we had a ton of fun. And I think we're really, really looking forward to being back in the classroom together. Look out for lots of puns, lots of pictures of my dog. Uh, maybe we'll flip in a few pictures of Stephen's dog, depending on how generous I'm feeling. But uh, if you're interested, definitely check it out. As with everything these days, it's remote, it's online. You can join us from anywhere in the world. And that brings us to today's very special guest. Justin, do you have any picks for us? Uh, yeah, actually, um, a great pick that I've had lately was uh, the uh, Logic uh, 8 and Logic 16 logic analyzers from Salier. Um, if you're a software engineer at heart and not a hardware engineer, uh, these logic analyzers actually make sense. Um, and so I can't recommend those enough. I've been using them and it's like the, the powerful debugger, right? You need that introspection. Uh, and then, uh, also, uh, you know, uh, I've been spending the last couple of months working at very, uh, on these teams of driving these new platforms, uh, forward for building these products on. And we've had some really interesting work that we've been able to work with and, um, I would uh, just say check out some of the stuff that's going on over the repositories there. Uh, check us out at uh, verypossible.com um, and uh, uh, you know, keep us in mind in case you're interested in uh, trying to be able to develop IoT products and platforms with NERVs. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Justin. I know I learned a lot about NERVs that I wasn't familiar with before. And uh, yeah, we're really looking forward to uh, you know maybe chatting with you again in the future. Great. Thanks. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.